Church, I invite you to draw your sword, take your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 23. I want to continue our four-part sermon series entitled Refresh, The Transforming Power of the Grace of God. Thus far, we have crossed paths with people like Moses and Elijah. Today, we will bump into a criminal who was converted at Calvary because our God snatches sinners by his sovereign grace. Our God snatches sinners by his sovereign grace. I invite you to take that word of God that you hold in your hand. Stand to your feet as we stand upon the word of the Lord. Hear me as I read Luke chapter 23, verses 39 to 43. Luke chapter 23, I'll begin at verse 39, I'll conclude at verse 43. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him. I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God, you may be seated. It is the gospel according to Mark who tells us the crucifixion began in the third hour. It is Luke who tells us that the crucifixion ended in the ninth hour. Since every day started at 6 a.m., the third hour was 9 a.m. in the morning. And the ninth hour was 3 p.m. in the afternoon. That may sound a bit confusing, but what the gospel writers are telling us is that the crucifixion of Jesus took place in a six-hour window on a faithful Friday in the third decade of the first century. Jesus was crucified between two thieves. It's the picture of grace surrounded by guilt. It is the emblematic photo of the Savior surrounded by sinners. It is the righteous one just hanging out with reprobates. It is Jesus being crucified between two thieves. Every gospel writer tells us that the thieves, the religious rulers, even the Roman soldiers hurled insults upon Jesus. They piled insults upon him. They mocked him. The Greek word for mock literally means to turn up one's nose. They got this. Jesus received this, not only from religious leaders and the Roman soldiers, but according to Matthew, even initially at first from both of the thieves on the cross. All of this an example of wasted breath. It's wasted breath for the religious leaders to criticize Jesus. It's wasted breath for the Roman soldiers to ridicule him. It is definitely an example of wasted breath for the thieves on the right and left of Jesus to hurl insults at him because if you died on a cross of wood, most of the time you died from suffocation. They are wasting their breath in a mob mentality of frenzy to hurl insults upon Jesus. Effort, energy, breath. They could have used to inhale and exhale. They were hurling insults at Christ. What an obnoxious scene. Everybody ridiculing Jesus. From those 
religious leaders, to those Roman soldiers, even to the people on his right and on his left. And how does Jesus respond? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. I've long been told that you are never more like God than when you forgive. You are never more like God than when you forgive. This morning, friend, I want to ask you, do you have somebody in your life that you need to forgive? Somebody who has ridiculed you, someone who has spoken ill of you, someone who has insulted you, someone who may have disappointed you, someone perhaps who has persecuted you. You have righteous revenge and you have righteous retaliation in your mind and on your heart. In fact, if you told me the story, I would tell you, you have a right to hold a grudge. But in our story, certainly Jesus had a right to hold a grudge. And what did he do? He said, Father, help those who are hurting me. Friends, you are never more like God than when you forgive. Is there somebody in your life you need to forgive? Is there somebody in your life that you're just disappointed in because of what they've done, what they've said, who they are, or what's happening in their life and how they've affected you? Regardless of the scenario or the situation, according to this great Passion Week of the Gospel, As God has forgiven us in Christ, we are compelled to forgive others. You are never more like God than when you forgive. What I'm about to tell you that follows is only told in the Gospel of Luke. There's no other Gospel writer that records the conversation between the thief and Jesus on the cross. But Luke gives us a valuable portrait of a criminal who was converted at Calvary. We don't know much about this criminal, do we? We don't know his name. We don't know his age. We don't know his crime. We just know that he's called a thief, a robber, an insurrectionist, someone who is rising up against the Roman government. He is anonymous in this story, and I think Luke does it intentionally because he's a masterful storyteller, because Luke wants you to see yourself in the eyes of this criminal. His story is my story. His story is your story. If you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, the way you come to faith in Jesus Christ in your story is the same way this criminal has come to faith in Christ in his story. His story is our story because he was radically transformed by the grace of God because ours is a God who snatches sinners By sovereign grace. The light of salvation is dawning. How do you know it's dawning? Well, because one of the criminals shouts at Jesus, you saved others, save yourself and us. And his comrade in crime simply looked at him and said, don't you fear God. We're under the same sentence. If you are going to come to faith in Jesus Christ, it is because of God's grace that this man had fear of God. I want to submit to you this morning that healthy fear, healthy faith, finds its origin in holy fear. Don't you fear God? 
We're all under the same sentence. Don't you fear the Lord. Don't you fear God. The fear of God is needed in order for you to have faith in God. In fact, if, if you're going to have faith in God, it, is, it finds its origin in a healthy sense of fear. You may want to push back right now and say, but pastor, what do you mean by that? I mean, we know what the writer of Proverbs says, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. But if you're telling us to fear God, what do you mean by that? Oh, I know what you mean, pastor. You mean that we've got to have a holy reverence of God, that we have to have a respectful awe of the holiness of our God. That's what you mean by the fear of the Lord. Well, you're partially right. I do think that you have to have a holy, reverent respect of God. And that is an appropriate understanding and working definition of fear. But can I go one step further? I think, I think that you and I have to have, at some level, a fear of God. One of the most fundamental lessons of life is that there is a God and you ain't him. That's one of the most fundamental lessons of life. There is a God. And you're not him. You are not God. I am not God. There is a God. And this God created everything out of nothing. He just spoke and everything came into existence. His ability, his activity, his strength, his power. It ought to incite within us a holy, reverent fear of him. He is God. He does not even have to lift a finger to move in this world. All he has to do is speak it, and it comes into existence. One of the most dangerous places to be is to be an individual or a couple or a family, a household, a community, a nation, a culture who has no fear of God. You do know what a fool is, don't you? A fool is a person who lives life as if God doesn't exist. That's a fool. One of the most dangerous places to be, one of the most foolish places to be, is to live life with no fear of God. Don't you fear God? We're under the same sentence. What gives you the right to ridicule the rabbi? He is here, but you and I clearly have done things wrong. Don't you fear God. If an earthly judge can do this to us, what do you think a heavenly judge will do to us? Don't you fear God. I think this man is experiencing the light of salvation that's beginning to dawn. Not fully there, but beginning to dawn upon his spirit. In a similar way as Isaiah, this man is saying, woe to me, I am ruined, I am undone, I'm as good as dead, because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. In response to seeing the King, the Lord Almighty, he says to his ridiculing criminal friend, don't you fear God, because of God's grace. This man had a fear of God. But secondly, this man also, because of God's grace, had a recognition of sin. We are here, he said, 
getting what our deeds deserve. We are being punished justly. But this man has done nothing wrong. Friends, you may call um, this crook on the cross a criminal. I call him a pretty good theologian. At least he acknowledges this man between us, this man on the middle cross, this man, he's done nothing wrong. I mean, we are sinful. We're getting what our deeds deserve. We deserve to be punished in this life and the one to come. But this man, he's done nothing wrong. It was John MacArthur who said, sin never becomes clearer than in the presence of righteousness. If you compare your sin to the criminals that are seated around you in this sanctuary, you may think to yourself you're not a bad person. If you compare your sinful deeds to the cosmic criminals or the people that are in front of you and behind you, to the left of you, to the right of you, if you compare your life to the life of others that are around you, you may come to this conclusion, I'm not a bad person, I'm a pretty good individual. But when you stand in the presence of righteousness, your sin never becomes clearer. When you compare your life to the sinless deeds of Christ, when you compare your deeds to the holy splendor of Christ Almighty, you begin to recognize your sin. Like the criminal on the cross. We are receiving what our sinful deeds deserve. We're getting what we deserve. We're guilty as charged. But this man, he's done nothing wrong. How does the criminal know this? Because for the first time perhaps in his life, he's measuring his existence against the righteous one. He's in the presence of righteousness and his sin has never become clearer in his life. I don't really know what's happened to sin. I mean, these days, people don't talk about sin. There are far too few pulpits that address sin. But not just from the preacher, and that's shameful enough, but I don't even hear it in the streets. I don't hear people talking about sin. They got different names for it. They call it different labels. They act as if they have no sin. They act as if they're their own God. And who is anybody else to call something that they do sin? But God does. I wonder what ever happened to sin. People have erroneously come to the conclusion, my sin is not that big of a deal. Oh, really? Your sin is so serious it required the death of the God-man to wipe it away. I mean, if it wasn't that big of a deal, if your sin wasn't even real, if your sin wasn't a big deal, if your sin was something small and insignificant, then God would have wiped your sin away by some other means. But because your sin, and because of my sin, because our sin is so serious, it's such a defiant act in front of the holy God, because it's so serious, it required the death of the Son of God to wipe it away. For don't you think that if God could have wiped your sin away some other way, he would have? 
Every parent in the crowd understands the the weight of the statement that in order to accomplish something, you would have to give up your one and only son. And yet that's exactly what God did. God gave up the second person of the Trinity. God gave up Jesus to serve as a substitutionary atonement for your sin debt so that you might live. The only way that you can have life is for Jesus to no longer have life. Jesus had to die in order for you to live. For the person who says, my sin is not that big of a deal, just listen to the criminal on the cross. We're getting what our sins deserve, but this man, he's done nothing wrong. We are sinners, he is not. You think to yourself, how do you come to a conclusion like that? Because he's dangling right next to righteousness. And his sin is clear. The reality that this man has done nothing wrong is repeated in the passion narrative. It is spoken by Pilate. It is spoken by Herod. Both Pilate and Herod say, this man has done nothing wrong. I see no reason to execute him. There's nothing that he's done that deserves death. It's summarized by the words of this criminal. This man has done nothing wrong. This man is unlike any other man. For every human that I know, every human that I don't know, every man and woman, boy and girl, we constantly do wrong. We do evil, wicked things. But this man, this man on the middle cross has done nothing wrong. This sinner is being snatched by sovereign grace because he has a fear of God And secondly, because he has a recognition of sin. Oh, but thirdly, because of God's grace, he calls on the name of Jesus. He was speaking to his compadre in crime. But now turning his attention towards Christ. He says, Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. He calls him by the sweetest name, doesn't he? He calls him by the most glorious name, doesn't he? He calls him by the most majestic name, doesn't he? He just simply says the name Jesus. Jesus, it's the name that calms my fears. Jesus, it's the name that wipes away my tears. Jesus, it's the name that flung the stars into space. Jesus, it's the name that set the planets in orbit. Jesus, it's the name that put earth in a strategic spot as to not be too close to the sun to burn up or too far from the sun to freeze. But Jesus in his sovereignty put this third marble from the sun. We call it the earth. And he put it in such a way so it could sustain human life. Not just human life, but every other living thing. So it is Jesus who made every person, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl. For every person is made in the imago Dei, in the very image of God. And Jesus is the one who created every animal and every insect and every bird. He is the one who created every tree and flower and plant. It is Jesus who made everything. He calls him by the name Jesus. It's the name That's above every name. That the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He called him Jesus. It's the only name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. The name Jesus. 
The name Jesus means he saves. He's he's calling on the name Jesus. He's asking for salvation. He says, Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. Here's the fourth principle that is true in his life. It's true in all of our lives if we come to faith in Christ. That the fourth principle is that because of God's grace, he asked Jesus to forgive him. You say, now, wait a minute, Pastor. I mean, I see the first three. The words are right there embedded in the text. I mean, I I get that we're supposed to fear God. We have a recognition of sin for we're getting what our sinful deeds deserve. I understand that he called the name Jesus, but how do you get that he asked him for forgiveness of sin? Well, what did he request? Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. Once again, I think this criminal on the cross, he has pretty good theology. He understands from the Old Testament That when Messiah comes, that when he ultimately comes at the eschaton, he will establish his kingdom. What is he asking for? That thief on the cross is simply requesting, when the last day arrives, that last final day, the eschaton, can I be in your holy entourage? Can I be part of your following? Remember me when you enter your kingdom. I think he has enough understanding to realize the three of us aren't going to survive this cross. I mean, the criminal would tell you, I know I'm not going to survive this. I feel, the, I feel a shallow breath. I, I feel the, the uh, overwhelming pain that's pulsating throughout my body. I, I, I feel as if I, I, I feel like I'm going to hyperventilate. I mean, I mean the, the criminal... He knows he's not going to survive. And his friend on the other side? (laughs) Well, he hadn't said a word in the last couple of minutes. He may be already dead for all we know. I mean, he's been cursing, but then he was silent. It just took the rebuke of the one criminal to silence his friend. And while the criminal knows that the man on the middle cross, I mean, he, he... He's Jesus, he's Messiah, he's the one who will bring in his his kingdom at the eschaton. He's come to the conclusion, I don't think he is going to get off this cross alive either. But here's his trust. I don't think this death is going to be the end of this Jesus. He's got a holy hunch. (laughs) He's got got a sanctified feeling in the pit of his stomach. I I, I don't think this death is going to be the end of Jesus. I mean, something's going to happen. He's got to be raised from the dead because he's Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the long-awaited king. And when he comes on that last day, he will usher in his kingdom at the eschaton. So, Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. Remember me on that last day. How does Jesus respond to a person who comes to him with a fear of God, a holy, healthy fear of God? Somebody who comes to him with a recognition of sin that, look, we're getting what our deeds, our sinful deeds deserve, who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus, that name that gives salvation, and asks him to forgive them? How does Jesus respond to that? Look, friend, I'll tell you, You can ask me to forgive you, but it will mean nothing for your salvation. 
You can ask other people to forgive you. In fact, you can even forgive other people who have wronged you. But it really means nothing for your salvation. He asked the forgiver to forgive him. He asked the one who holds salvation in his hands to forgive him. How does Jesus respond to a person who has fear of God and recognition of sin and calls on the name of Jesus and ask the forgiver to forgive him. How does Jesus respond? I'll tell you how he responds. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Uh, oh boy, uh, this is better than you could ever imagine. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. You don't have to wait till the eschaton. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. You don't have to wait till next week. You don't have to wait till next month. You don't got to wait till next year. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Today, you will be with me in paradise. When a person calls on the name of the Lord, it yields immediate results. Not all y'all heard me. A couple of you heard me, but not all y'all heard me. So I'll say it again. When a person calls on Christ... For salvation, it yields immediate results. He called on Christ, and Jesus said, Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Today, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. Today is the day of salvation. Today, forgiveness of sin is given. Today, the sinner receives salvation. Today is the day of the Lord. Today is the day of your salvation. You call on Christ, and today, you'll be with me in paradise. When you call on Christ, there are immediate results. You ask the forgiver to forgive you and immediately he responds. Your call to Christ yields immediate results. Today you'll be with me in paradise. What is paradise? Well, we could have a healthy discussion on what Jesus means by paradise. Can I just cut through it all and just say paradise is heaven? The word paradise is only used two other times in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Revelation chapter 2. Both of those are a reference to heaven. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, it's when Paul is caught up to the third heaven. He calls it paradise. Revelation chapter 2 verse 7. The first letter, Jesus writes to the seven letters to the seven churches. And Jesus says, he who has an ear to hear, let him receive it. Let him hear it. And you will be with me in paradise. I don't know, what, I don't know how you understand that. But to me, paradise sounds a lot like home. It sounds a lot like heaven. To be absent from this body is to be in paradise with God. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. It's not the last thing Jesus said on that faithful Friday. If you, if you study the words of Christ, it would appear as if Jesus is calling the shots. He's the one pulling the strings. He does not obey death. Death obeys him. This God who created time, space, and matter in a six-hour window of time, squeezed into that space all the matter of condemnation for you and for me. You say, how is it possible for God to put an eternity's worth of hell upon the shoulders of Jesus in a six-hour window? Well, my friend... 
God created time and space. He has control over time and space. But we know that he who knew no sin in that moment became sin for us. He died so that we might live. The righteous one was, de was declared unrighteous so that we who are unrighteous may be declared righteous in his sight. The one who was sinless was draped in our sinfulness so that we who are sinful may be draped in the sinlessness of Christ. A sweet transaction took place that day. And what Jesus did for the criminal on the cross, he does for all of us who come to him by faith. Today you'll be with me in paradise. It is Jesus who comes to the very end and he just simply says to Telestai, it is finished. What's finished? Payment for your sin is finished. Payment in full. It's completed. The job is done. I got her done. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus said to Telestai. Now, you and I can discuss and even debate where did Jesus go after he died. Some say he went to hell. I'm not so convinced he went to hell. I am convinced of this. Hell came to Jesus. And Jesus pushed hell away by saying to Telestai, I've paid the price. I took the hell for you. Jesus endured our hell so we might experience his heaven. Jesus said to Telestai, it is finished. He bowed his head, gave up his ghost. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus died. He went to heaven. When he went to heaven, who did he bump into? The criminal on the cross. The criminal on the cross. Why? Because Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. I want to share with you an illustration. I've shared it with you before, but I'm a preacher. We're supposed to repeat ourselves. <laughs> this illustration bears repeating. It's told to us by Alistair Begg. He said, when you have to answer the question, by what basis are you saved? If you ever start your answer with a third person singular, you've got it wrong. Because I, because I believe, because I have faith. If you start the answer to by what basis are you saved, and if you start it with because I, you're all the way wrong. The appropriate answer is to start it with the third person singular, because he because he died for me, because he was buried in my tomb, because he rose on the third day. It's because he went to Calvary for me. Alistair Begg says, if you don't believe me, just ask the criminal on the cross. He said, when I get to heaven, I want to go up to that criminal and I want to say, you made it. You made it. I don't know how, but you made it. How did you get here? And the criminal will tell his story. I went to the man at the pearly gates and he asked me that same question. Why are you here? And I had the same answer. I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? I don't know. Wait a minute. Have you ever been to a Bible study? No. Have you ever been baptized? No. Have you ever been to church? No. How are you here? I don't know. Well, you, I, how, what, we get, let me go get my supervisor. So he goes and gets his supervisor. And the supervisor at the pearly gates comes up and says, excuse me, we've had a little bit of confusion. We understand that you're not quite clear on how you gain entrance into God's kingdom. So let's just go through a couple of questions just to make sure that you understand exactly what it takes to get in here. Because we can't just let anybody in here. We got to let specific people in here. So here's the first question. What is your understanding of the justification by faith alone? 
And the man says, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. Okay, we'll skip question one. We'll go to question two. What is your understanding of the doctrine of the Holy Scripture? I don't even know what you're talking about, he says. It's at this point that the supervisor is getting a little hot under his angelic collar. And he says, well, by what basis are you here? And the criminal will just say, the man on the middle cross said I could come. How are you in heaven? How do you have salvation? How have you been saved? The man on the middle cross said I could come. He died for my sin. He died for your sin. That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The man on the middle cross said I could come. You see, this is the highest holiday in the Christian calendar. Everything about our faith rises and falls upon the reality of Good Friday and Easter Sunday morning. What Jesus did on the cross by dangling as your substitute, taking the punishment that you deserved, taking hell upon himself, being buried, and then on the third day, conquering sin, death, hell, and the grave. And he is the hope of resurrection, for he's the first fruit of resurrection, first in prominence, first in authority. And Jesus is raised from the dead. Everything rises and falls on the reality of Good Friday and Easter Sunday. This past week, I was with some of our students and our adults. We were on the streets of New York City. We did our best to minister in the name of Christ. We helped people in the subway and on the street. We gave them what we had. It may have only been a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. We gave them what we had in the name of Christ. When they would let us pray, we prayed over them, prayed for them. Students did a great job. Adults did a phenomenal job. If you talk to the 20 of us that went, you would get more than 20 different stories of what was the most meaningful part of the trip. But for me, one of the most meaningful and disturbing parts of the trip is when we were able to go to the Islamic Center. The Islamic imam, the pastor, he let us come in for one of the five times of prayer. We couldn't speak. We sat in the back. We watched and we listened as these men prayed. Prayed to a God of darkness. Prayed to a God of emptiness. Prayed to a God that doesn't exist. The room was cold. After the prayer time, we went upstairs. The imam was very respectful. He shared with us for a few moments. We heard his story. We heard about his family. We heard about his upbringing. At a very young age, his father sent him away to memorize the Quran. He did. He knows it. He told us the five pillars of Islam. He shared with us some things about his faith. He fielded questions from us. Your students, our students, were very respectful. The questions that they asked were very insightful. 
And he clearly answered. When the question was posed to him, by what basis will people of your faith get to heaven? He clearly said to our students, and they heard it, our hope is that we do more good than bad, and Allah will let us into his heaven. When pressed on that question, by what assurance can anyone in your faith have that they'll go to heaven? His only response was that on the day of judgment, God will set a scale, and we hope we've done more good than bad. I know that you may not have been there. But on this Sunday morning, when I'm thinking about that criminal on the cross, when I'm thinking about the blood of Jesus Christ that saves sinners, snatches them by his sovereign grace, I want to say to every Islamic imam, every Islamic person, every Jewish individual, every good old boy or good old girl who lives up and down the streets of Pelham, Helena, and Alabaster, Alabama, I just want to say there is a fountain and it's filled with blood and it's drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood and they lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. What God has done for me, he will do for you. And this morning, I invite you to accept Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. If you have not, then today could be the day of salvation. If you are a Christian, I'll just ask you to pray. Pray for your family members. Pray for your friends, pray for your coworkers, pray for your classmates, pray for your teammates who do not know Jesus as Savior and Lord. Because if they, if they uh, exit this life without explicit faith in Christ, Jesus is very clear. He is the only way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. And if you have all your family members and they're already all saved, and if you don't know any sinful people, and if you know any lost people, then today I want you to join me. I want you to pray for the Islamic imam of New York City. I want you to pray for the Muslim man that we met on the street. And when I asked him, can I pray for you? Can I pray over you in Jesus' name? He looked at me, shook his head no, went off on his bicycle. And there are other individuals who are refusing Christ. And this morning, friends, we need to pray for them because they're dangling on their cross. They don't know how much longer they have in this life. No one knows how much longer we have in this life. But before we exhale our last breath, we must declare, Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And he will respond by saying, today, you'll be with me in paradise. So today, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ, if you've never explicitly placed your faith in him, today is the day of salvation for you, my friend. We're going to sing a song. Ministers will be here at the front. You come. Just say, I need that, Jesus. I need to know the man on the middle cross. If you are a Christian, will you join me in prayer today? Will you pray for the criminals in your life, the cosmic crooks in your family, up and down your neighborhood, and even people that you've never met before? Because the only hope we have rests in the reality of the events of this week between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. Jesus died for our sins once for all 
according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures for all who believe. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a God who snatches sinners by your sovereign grace. Lord, today, if there's one here who does not know you as Savior and Lord, I pray that today is the day of salvation. Oh, Father, we pray that we will intercede on behalf of friends and family members who do not know you yet. Maybe people that we met this past week in New Orleans or New York City or someplace in between. And Father, we pray for them. We ask for the light of salvation to dawn upon their heart today. We pray that they will express faith before, before it's too late and they will call on the name of Christ Jesus. So Lord Jesus, hear our prayers. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.